0: Would you take your Bibles, please, and open to Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 3. If you're using one of the Bibles from the seat rack in front of you, you will find Ecclesiastes 3 on page 554. It's an Old Testament book. It is written, we believe, by King Solomon, though he doesn't use that name uh, specifically. There are enough other clues in this book that I believe we can confidently say he's the author. We began a series in Ecclesiastes just a couple of weeks ago. If this is your first time at Gospel Hope, we try to open God's Word week by week and typically are doing book studies, books of the Bible, both Old and New Testament. Um, It's not uncommon, though, that we will step into a topical study, but always with our Bibles open. This is God's Word. He breathed it out for us and it carries the authority of God himself, and it's a great privilege for us to have copies of God's Word in our language. We sometimes take that for granted, uh, but what a gift God's Word is to us, and so we want you to Follow along as we study our way through the end of chapter 3 and then actually all of chapter 4. If you do not have your own copy of the Bible, we would be delighted if you would just keep the copy that you just took out from the seat rack. Um, Make it your own. Read it. Learn it. Uh, Jump into one of these growth groups and uh, because all of those are built around God's Word. And we believe these are the words that give us life. Uh, so it is a great treasure for us. I'm thankful for Dean and Wendy and the other growth group leaders. Uh, you, I think you mentioned you had 20 seniors there this past Thursday. So we're thankful for that. And, um, you know, my wife doesn't like the fact that I now qualify for all kinds of discounts. I tried her to get her to go with me to take advantage of some, but, you know, somehow Denny's is not appealing to her. Uh, so... Her time is coming, though, and, um, yeah, so you uh, you can encourage Kristen to relax with that. Like, it's, it's a good thing. Now, we are thankful for our growth group leaders, and we're still on the front side of launching those, and if you are not yet a part of one, please, please sign up. Come visit. Uh, You're not obligated uh, just because you show up one time, but I think you will find not only an opportunity to be in God's Word, but to build relationships. Uh, Kristen and I are helping to lead the meaning of marriage, and uh, we've got a good crew that have joined us. We even have several singles who are part of it, and the study is actually designed for both married and single people alike just to explore God's design uh, for the covenant of marriage. So all kinds of opportunities for you, and uh, we'd love to show you how you can get connected to one. Remember that Solomon is giving us what he calls goads and nails. Uh, The goads uh, are those prods. That would be a a more modern uh, word that we could use. Uh, Goads are designed, prods are designed to get uh, sometimes animals moving in a direction they don't want to go. And there are things in life that God has built into our experience that are designed to get us moving in the direction he knows we need to go and Solomon has been identifying some of those goads uh, in life that we all experience. He's also drawing conclusions along the way. These are conclusions of wisdom and uh, counsel and advice for us. Those he describes as nails, firmly fixed, like the nails out back that are holding our new building together, like the old nails that are still holding up the the framework of this building behind those walls and such. They're really important for life. And if you want to build the kind of life that will stand the test of time, that will stand the stress and strain of this world we live in, you need to have God's wisdom. And that's what the nails are. Well, Solomon has been leading us through a series of observations, sharing his own experiences. Really, Ecclesiastes, in many ways, is like a personal journal that God opened up for us through the pen of Solomon. And in this section, Solomon is going to list a number of things that really are troubling to the soul. These are the concerns that we encounter in day-to-day life. Some of them on a macro kind of scale and experience, and others more micro- Centered maybe in your little corner of the world, but nonetheless, these are the kinds of things that bring frustration and confusion, and even for those of us who follow God and want to serve him, we sometimes say, God, if you are sovereignly in control, as we were looking at last week, why do you allow? Why do you permit? Why don't you bring punishment or justice or judgment upon the bad guys of the world? So we're all wrestling with a number of questions. Now, Solomon had his eyes open to the world around him, just like you and I do. And as we read through this portion, you're going to see that he was very troubled by several things that he saw, just like you and I are troubled. And in this particular section, I think there are at least five and maybe a sixth one, depending on how you want to read it and, and place it but there are things here that we're going to explore that, again, really kind of serve as goads. They're prods to our souls, and they're going to move us some direction. The the question is, what direction will you go when your soul is prodded? I want you to follow along as I begin reading in Ecclesiastes 3, verse 16, and then I'm going to read through chapter 4. This is God's Word. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beasts for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work for that is, that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive, but better than both is he who has not yet been born and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun." And I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other either son or brother. Yet there is no end to all his toil and his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is a vanity and an an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been, but been born poor. I saw all the living who move under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who came later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. Would you join me in praying? Father, first of all, we thank you for your word. It is alive and powerful It is described as being sharper than a two-edged sword. You have designed it to pierce to the deepest places where soul and spirit come together. It is a discerner of our thoughts and of our motives. We fear to think that we would be exposed at that kind of core. We fear to think that our motives might be revealed even to this assembly. That people would know us as we truly are, but you, O God, already know. Would you cause by your Spirit's ministry to us, each person, to be humble, to be honest, to be open and transparent before your fearful, almighty, all-knowing gaze on this day. And we pray that. Not that we would be crushed, but that you would lead us from that place of fear, of hiding, of covering, into the light of your truth that we may be forgiven for our sins and healed of the deep wounds of our hearts, strengthened in faith where hope is is birthed within our souls, and above all that we see the great King, Jesus, the Messiah of whom we have already sung. How much we need this King Some of us, Lord, are just flat worn out from trying to be king over our own lives. And we've not only done a poor job, we've made a mess of things. And we ask that for those who despair of where they are at this moment, that you would awaken them to see that the one who is wisdom himself is kind and gracious, forgiving and loving beyond our wildest dreams. That he laid down his life in order that we might never die. Oh God, lead us from the wisdom of this living book to the one who is wisdom. That we may not despair in these few days that we have on planet earth and that we may not lose our souls forever in eternity. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen want to summarize the five goads as I see them in this portion of the text and see if you don't agree with Solomon uh, that these are really difficult things. These are deep concerns for us as we experience them in life. Go back to verse 16 with me and note with me, first of all, that there is the corruption of justice. Solomon says simply, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Now, justice would be what we all know the courts are supposed to represent. It should be the place where there are decisions that are based on law, where legal actions and even legal suits are carried out with fairness and equity. And the word righteousness has to do with then doing what is right in light of the law. And isn't it interesting that the most powerful king of that day, Solomon, is saying that as he has moved through the world that existed, he was observing great wickedness in those institutions where there ought to be fairness and equity and right. Do you know that between 1985 and 2015, in our country, in the federal court system, there were 57,000 corruption cases that were tried? I did a little math. That's about five a day. And that's just the ones we know. Imagine what's taking place outside of the courts. We feel this. We know this in our hearts. The, this article that I found that gave this statistic went on to say that a comprehensive analysis revealed that fraud and bribery dominated the types of conduct underlying those criminal cases, accounting for 76% of the, uh, the lead charges in those cases. But there were also two other areas, uh, those being extortion and conspiracy. And so those four, fraud, bribery, extortion, and conspiracy... To the tune of 57,000 cases that actually made it into court. Just Friday, I think it was Friday, wasn't it? That New Jersey Democratic Senator Robert Menendez uh, was the subject of a 39-page bribery and corruption indictment. You know, and people read that, and you know, one side of the political uh, spectrum goes, "Oh, yeah, it, it." I mean, we're just chasing our tails as a culture because there are other Republicans who have been prosecuted and, and will be, and, and we all point a finger at the other side, and wouldn't you love to see somebody just stand up and own it and go, you know what, I am a criminal, and I'm casting myself at the mercy of the court and of this nation. I've begged God for forgiveness. I'm begging for you for forgiveness. I'll pay back what little I can of what I've stolen and plundered and, and the ways that I've exploited from you. I feel deep shame, and I'm begging God for mercy, and I beg you for mercy. But we're we're all cynical enough at this point, like, not going to happen. That's because there's a corruption, or I should say there's a corruption in the justice system because there's corruption in our hearts. We hear reported almost every day, or the phrase used, the weaponization of the justice system. Probably is. Sure it is. I find myself becoming increasingly skeptical about our own courts. This is more than a frustration for us because we are also painfully aware that it seems even more frequently in our day the innocent suffer for crimes they not, have not actually committed and then guilty ones go free, not even so much as a slap on the wrist. What, what, what's happening God is actually letting us experience the consequences of living life apart from Him. The corruption that Solomon saw in the justice system, the corruption that we see in our justice system, is actually a symptom of a soul issue. Solomon's deeply concerned and frustrated with it. Here's the second one go on to verse 18 the universality of death. Now Solomon makes an interesting statement. You've got to read this in the right way uh, when he begins to say that, you know, humankind is no better than the beasts uh, of, of the field. Is he making a biological statement here? I mean, did, was he ahead of Darwin? Well, no, this is not a statement of biology. It's a statement of destiny. Because the point he's actually making is that we all breathe the same air, we're all actually made of the same dust. Now you go back to the Genesis account, and you find that only, only mankind was created in the image of God. But God is the giver of all life, and everything that breathes his air is sustained by his hand. But all were brought from the dust, and are all are returning to the dust. Here's the, here's the key thought, though. Look at verse 18 with me. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. That is, God is allowing us to experience the, the, the deep, even fears that arise in our, our hearts, that we're not going to live forever in these bodies and in this life as we know it, and we're surrounded by death. Face it every day. Now, that's a terrifying thing if you don't have the confidence and security that your destiny is secure. God is testing us to see if we will actually come to grips with the fact that we're mortal. You don't have the power to sustain your own life. I I was actually thinking, I don't always think this before I go to sleep last night, but as Kristen and I finished up the day and even having a little moment of prayer, the thought entered my head that we're about to enter a, a comatose state for all practical purposes, right? I'm not gonna have one rational thought during this time that will actually keep my heart beating and my lungs uh, inhaling. Fully dependent upon God for the next period of sleep. Well, I'm actually fully dependent upon him every day, but we sometimes feel like we're a little more in control and in charge than we are. You know, it's actually a gift of God if he brings you to the place where you're having to face your mortality Several years ago, I, I read uh, an extensive article written by this particular doctor, Alex Leikerman, um, and this is pulled from a book he wrote, Happiness in this World, Reflections of a Buddhist Physician. Now, I'm going to read a little more than the quotation that's actually on the screen for you there, so just don't, don't read that paragraph yet. We'll get there. Let, let me walk you into that, all right? So divert your eyes from the screen. Now, some of you cannot divert your eyes from the screen. You're a rebel, He wrote, the true significance of my denial of impending death, that's what he's talking about, wasn't made clear to me until I was diagnosed with PTSD. The anxiety that began to develop, it enveloped me at that point was of an entirely different order than I'd ever experienced before. It began to interfere with my ability to function, which made plain to me that uh, it, it, sorry, uh, let me back up. It began to interfere with my ability to function, which made plain to me that what my brush with death, and, and he had previously described two close encounters with death, where he, he should have died, was brought back. But those brushes with death had taken from me the ability to believe I would never die. He, he was living with a bit of a delusion, wasn't he? Now, at this point, that's not a good thing that that was taken from him. How do we know that? Well, he goes on to say, knowing intellectually that death awaits us is quite clearly a different thing from believing it. Much in the same way, knowing intellectually gravity will make you fall is a different experience from actually swooning at the edge of a parapet at the top of a tall building. Any of you ever felt that sway? Any of you ever felt that compulsion to just take a step off? I I have that from time to time say, that's weird. No, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Ultimately, being ill brought me to the realization, contrary to what I'd always believed in my heart, that there was nothing special about me at all. Like everyone else, I was only a piece of meat that would eventually spoil. Now, that's a little impolite, Right? He's more than that. But actually, he is coming to the conclusion that Solomon's addressing here. I'm no different from animal life. In one sense, that's true. Now now you can look at the screen with me. I'm, I'm picking it up, and I've included this part here. Listen to what he says. I've tried to resolve my fear of death intellectually and come to the conclusion that it can't be done, at least not by me. Some kind of practice that actually has the power to awaken me to the truth is required. Thus, my grand experiment continues. What about yours? Oh, I, I would love to know if this doctor created in God's image created to know God to live in right relationship with him to to live in the confidence that his eternal destiny is secure I wonder if he has ever found the truth that would awaken in him the kind of power that he's seeking to get over this great fear of death I suspect there are some of you here right now who would say if you were really honest yeah I'm terrified of death too because I don't know what happens you want, some of you would say, "Well, I mean, I just we cease to exist, right?" I mean, you get this little tiny window of life on planet Earth in this very brief history of humanity, and that's it. No, you know in your soul, there's more to it than that, and that's what keeps you awake at night. Go to verse twenty-one. It's been translated as a question, and I I think that's legitimate, but if it just remains as an unanswered question, Solomon writes, who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? Well, can that be known? Actually, there's good news because by the end of this book in chapter 12, first of all in verse 7, Solomon does say specifically, the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit of, of a person returns to God who gave it, so he knows... And then he goes on to write in chapter 12, verse 14, for God will bring every deed into judgment and every secret thing, whether good or evil. Oh, yeah, there is life beyond planet Earth. But the universality of death is a goad designed by God to get all of us thinking, what happens after this life? What is my ultimate destiny? Now, here's the third one. The abuse of power. Look at chapter 4. First three verses, Solomon says, Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. It's a great frustration of our hearts, isn't it, that wicked people do seem to possess the greatest amount of power on planet Earth. And the word oppressions has to do with any hardship or difficulty that, that one person creates in the life of another for the purpose of gaining an advantage, sometimes over that individual specifically, but sometimes just an advantage in life. One of the men in our men's meetup Friday morning was sharing how on a trip internationally they had been taken into uh, this factory and it was... Uh, the, the little stop on the tour was sold as if we have a really great thing to show you. See all these children? Well, we employ them during the day so they can learn a skill and then we put them in school at night so they can learn and, and our friend at Men's Meetup was saying it was crystal clear to all of us that they were exploiting cheap child labor because somebody realized if we can manufacture this product you know, for pennies on the dollar and sell it you know, at a At an exorbitant price, we get rich. Yeah, but at whose expense? These acts of abusive power or the abuse of authority that result in the burdening and trampling and crushing of those who are lower in life's station is a great evil. And from the CIA to HOAs, there's... Frequent abuses of power. I read a great story this week. This, is, this story is told of a surgeon who was continually harassed by his HOA. He bought a piece of property, and the HOA just harassed him day in and day out. They tore out trees he had planted. They fined him large sums of money for infractions that, by his estimation, were baseless. And when he would fight them and ask for proof, they would retaliate by bringing even more actions against him. Well, apparently he was quite a prestigious surgeon in his day and had banked a lot of money. And so he decided that he would begin to buy up every piece of property that became available in the neighborhood. He over a year he bought multiple plots that and, and that came on the market and he put them in the names of different businesses that he owned, so it would not be evident. Uh, to the the HOA leadership that he personally was behind all of that. He didn't want to raise any suspicions. And then one day when he owned a majority share uh, of that neighborhood, he walked into the HOA meeting, put the legal paperwork on the table, demonstrated that he was the majority owner, and disbanded the HOA on the spot. (laughs) Don't you love stories like that? God loves stories like that. But you do have to pause and ask, what resides in the human heart that we are willing to actually cause great hardship and even suffering in the life of another in order to advance our own cause? There may not be anybody here who's guilty of of this kind of abuse of power on a macro scale, but we're all guilty on a micro scale, aren't we? Husbands do it to wives, wives do it to husbands, parents do it to children, children do it to parents, siblings, friends, church members. See, what Solomon is observing is a human problem. Well, he goes on in verse 4 to talk about uh, a motive that really troubles him, and that is the motive of envy. Look at verse 4. I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. Is that it, Solomon, really? Like, is that the only motivation for doing work? One person said, envy is the art of counting the other fellow's blessings instead of your own. You ever stand in your driveway and look at your neighbor's RV and go, huh, yeah, it makes me angry. And you're not angry because, you know, it's a big RV, You're angry that you don't own it. You look at your neighbor's yard. How come he has no dandelions growing in his grass? Envy shows up in a thousand ways. And envy is actually a sin. Defining it in a technical sense, it's a state of ill will ranging even to anger, based on a perceived advantage or a desire for some kind of exclusive access to material possession or even a relationship. It goes hand in hand with the abuse of power and exploitation, doesn't it? Solomon says is, is this it is this the is this the compelling motive for all of us who are working so hard toiling with all of our skill in the work that has been put before us? Look at verse five. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. What's that all about? Well, there are a couple different ways we could go, but it seems to indicate that there are some who simply withdraw from life. Perhaps it's because they got so burned by the rat race itself that, that they're like not doing this anymore. But Solomon describes them as foolish because they have totally withdrawn. And one author even writes of this idleness that it eats away not only what this individual has put, uh, what this individual has But what he is, eroding his self-control, his grasp of reality, his capacity for care, and in the end, his self-respect. The envy of neighbors. Well, the fifth one, verse 7, isolation from others. Solomon writes, again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother. And those would have been really key relationships uh, in this ancient time. Yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? It's a great question to be asking. What causes this isolation and removal from the relationships of life and even the pleasures of life? Well, Solomon names it. His eyes are never satisfied with riches. He is hungry for material possessions. He is hungry for the resources that uh, lie at his fingertips. And so he's paid a price, hasn't he? He's paid a terrible price for this because there are no substantial relationships that he could ever pause for a moment to enjoy. And I was thinking as I was looking at this last night, it's Charles Dickens, Ebenezer Scrooge. But I wonder if this is you. This is more than um, workaholic-ism. This is a person who actually says no to relationships. No to any pleasure. So driven by this desire that may be fed in part by envy. That may result in the abuse of power and the oppression of others. We don't know exactly how it works out, but you begin to see that, that all of these kind of begin to meld together and at least intersect at, at several different points. Isolation from others. You know, you were not created to live in isolation. So what do we do with these scenarios? And if God is prodding us with these concerns and frustrations, where does he want us to go? Well, in the immediate text, I think there are at least three nails that we'll identify from this passage. And again, I I think we could probably say, oh, there's a fourth one, and that, that looks like a fifth one, and maybe a sixth one, but we're gonna focus on three. And the first is this, the nail of coming judgment. Look at verse 12 of chapter 3. God will judge the righteous and the wicked for there is a time for every matter and every work. Now that's an echo of the poem that we worked through last week at the beginning of chapter 3. Remember I told you that it wasn't actually uh, written by Pete Seeger in 1959. Like that, Solomon, all right? God will judge the righteous and the wicked. There's a coming judgment that all of us are going to Face, and we touched on that just a few moments ago when I quoted from uh, Ecclesiastes 12:7 and 14. Verse 14 says, in particular, God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now, that could actually cause some of you to just tremble in fear right now. Like, man, I, I got some some skeletons in my closet. There's some stuff that is in my past that I, not even my spouse knows, or not even my closest friend knows well God knows my friend and when you stand before his great white throne as it's described a throne of purity a throne of righteous judgment and and you are called to give account for every deed every thought every word what will be your defense and if you go to the last book of the Bible and you read through those closing chapters where that great white throne is described, like when, God, when, when, when the judge of the universe, and that's God, ascends that throne to render those judgment, it says heaven and earth flee from his presence. There will be no argument that you can offer, no defense that you can make. I'll come back to that in a moment, but that's something that all of us need to be preparing for. But here's another, actually, word of encouragement. Some of you have suffered terrible things. And the words oppression and abuse and envy ring a different note in your soul because you have been victimized in ways that are wicked and evil. My dear friend, you suffer greatly now, but know this the perpetrators of such great evil are not getting away with it. That's why God encourages His people by saying, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And when God unleashes His wrath, which is holy and just and righteous and appropriate, it is breathtaking. Be patient. Give him time and give him space. Judgment comes. There's a second nail, the nail of contentment. Look at chapter four, verse six. Right in the middle of all this frustration and concern that Solomon is cataloging for, for us, he says, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. Oh, isn't that the truth? Hardly seems accessible in today's world, but God really does mean it. And you know, when you're driven by envy, you'll never be satisfied. But when you are in right relationship with God, knowing that he is sovereign, sovereignly in control of every day of your life and the appointed times and seasons of your life, when you can even stand in your driveway and look across the fence and go, that's a really nice RV. And then you turn back to your driveway and there's no RV in, in parked you know, on your concrete pad, even though you might say, Lord, I'd like to have one one day. But you know, because you're in right relationship with him, It's good, and you really can be content. Hundreds of thousands of saints have gotten this point through the ages, and those of you who know God in that intimate and personal way, who know the power of of Christ's life at work in you, the removal of your sin, the removal of your guilt, the removal of your shame, where you know the joy of being in right relationship with the God who created you, and your life is not perfect, but you just have this sense day in and day out, I'm right where I need to be, and there's God, ever-present, ever-blessing, always faithful, you know what what Paul means when he says to Timothy, godliness with contentment is great gain. And then Paul goes on to say, we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. I wonder if Paul had been reading Ecclesiastes. And then he says in verse eight, if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Now that's foreign thinking for some of you. You're like, man, was Paul a crazy man? no. He was actually a brilliant man, a man who had suffered greatly because he followed Jesus, yet he's writing some words of encouragement to his son in the faith, Timothy, to say, Timothy, listen, keep the right things in the right place. Don't get swept up into what this world tells you. You know what? This is a real challenge for most of us because we grew up in the advertising age. And most of us were born after television was invented and you have seen thousands upon thousands of messages designed to make you discontent with your life. And some of you stood in the closet this morning and said, that, that outfit is, is two years old and I think I actually wore it four Sundays ago. I can't wear that again today. And and part of what you've been conditioned to believe is that other people really pay attention and notice that, and they go home and keep records. (laughs) Yeah, Kristen had that sweater on five weeks ago. What's her deal today? (laughs) Now, maybe there are some of you who do that, but like, oh, bless your heart. (laughs) Repent of that. (laughs) Be done with it. So we've been conditioned to believe that our lives are not perfect that they're not satisfying that they're not fulfilling we need more and you know what we're told is we need more and more stuff i'm not gonna lie to you i mean i just think the designers of the corvette are are one of god's good gifts to planet earth <laughs> there aren't too many models that i don't look at and go oh that's awesome and some of the newer models that are on the streets now, I'm like, are you serious? I, I didn't think you could make it better, but you did. Oh, my, oh, how good my life would be if I could drive one of those. I mean, if I could own one. Like, think of what pastoral visitation would turn into. <laughs> mm. You're laughing because you know in your heart as I do, like, that's ridiculous. The nail of contentment. To have God is to have everything. And having God, you can then say, if I've got a little something to eat today and enough clothes to put on to keep me warm uh, when it's cool outside or to actually help me be cooler when it is really warm, I'm good. Life is good. The nail of contentment. Go to verse 9, chapter 4 the nail of community. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. If they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? Now that last Verse 11, two lying together, is an image derived from that of travelers who who would frequently lie beside each other to stay warm on cold desert nights. Some of you have camped enough where you know that if there's another body in a tent next to you, it does make a difference. But the usage here is metaphorical, as one author writes, for emotional comfort against the coldness of the world. What a, what a sad thing to live your life without building significant relationships and then you hit a moment of difficulty or crisis where you really need the support of other people around you, but you have none. Or if you go into business all by yourself and then and, and, you know, the business collapses, there, there's no one to turn to. And Solomon is making the point that in community, productivity increases, protection is available, and comfort abounds. And these are just echoes of Genesis 1 and 2 where God himself said, it is not good for man to be alone. Now, the first community he built was actually in the covenant of marriage. And out of that, a family community grew. But in time, cities and other neighborhoods would come out of that. That's because God created each of us for relationship. And Solomon, the preacher king, is recording powerful wisdom for his readers, but I, I want to be careful that we don't just stop here or else we just walk out of here going, well, we need to you know, commit ourselves to being ready for the coming judgment and, and we need to be content people and we need to build a better community. And there's actually no gospel in that. All we've done is demoralize the text. And even Solomon wisdom, Solomon's wisdom is designed by God to push us beyond some of the specifics that Solomon recorded in this book. We actually need more than Solomon's wisdom to resolve these contradictions and frustrations, especially when we get really honest and say, you know, yeah, there is oppression and wickedness and envy out there, but oh, there's so much in my heart. What do I do about this? Well, remember, the Bible is one story. 927 years after Solomon, another king arrived. And in Matthew 12, 42, that king was speaking on a particular day and he said to the crowd around him, behold, something better than Solomon is here. That's King Jesus. And he came to end the oppression and the envy and the wickedness in the justice system, but he, he did it by a different wisdom altogether. It's what the Apostle Paul called the wisdom of the cross. Would you turn to 1 Corinthians 1 for just a few minutes here in conclusion? Because my friend, what you and I need is not just a better book of wisdom to live by. We need wisdom to be written into our hearts. We need a king who can lead us through a, transform, a process of transformation and actually lead us into a a new kind of life. And Paul begins to write this letter uh, to the Corinthian church in the first century. And as you can see from the screen, but if your Bible is open, look at what he says uh, in verse 17. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, the good news, and not with words of eloquent wisdom. That's what so many of the the popular speakers of the day would do they're just given you know here here are seven truths to live by here's some really good counsel or advice for you in business or parenting or family no Paul is actually going deeper he's going to a more specific point he says that Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it, that is, this word, is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart." Skip to verse 22. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. And can we pause right there? Why was that a stumbling block for Jews? Well, because remember they they are representative of really religious. And it caused them to stumble because it negated all the self-righteous credits that they had accrued by their obedience to the law and by their observance of the traditions that had been passed down and, and by showing up at the synagogue on the Sabbath and the temple when those annual feasts rolled around. They were so religious and so zealous and so committed to their moral codes, but there was no relationship with God in their hearts. And so Paul and others show up and preach this good news of a crucified Savior and a gift of righteousness that's by faith alone, and they just fall flat on their faces over it and say, no way. Well, then he says it's foolishness to Greeks. Well, those are the non-religious, because again, the gospel message just seems so outrageous. Like you people believe that God showed up in flesh 2,000 years ago and lived some kind of life and, and did ministry and performed miracles for 30 years and then he went to the cross and he died this death that you all say was a substitute payment for your sins. And by that death, God, uh, God forgives people who repent of their sins. I mean, it just seems like the most outrageous, ridiculous, foolish story. But yeah, that's exactly what the gospel is. And that's why Paul goes on to write these beautiful words but to those who are called, that is those who are hearing the divine summons, who hear God's divine summons to say, leave your evil, leave the oppression, leave the envy, leave the frustration of life, come to me. That's the the call, both Jews and Greeks and isn't it good that God is not a respecter of, of, of classes or groups of people. It's like this, this universal call that goes out. What does he say? Christ, and it's helpful to insert the little word is, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And this is the only wisdom that saves. Do you know at the cross, every one of these goads that frustrates and concerns and discourages us, is actually resolved. You say, how so? Well, Christ suffered the greatest injustice the world has ever known as he was punished for our sins, but there was a divine purpose and a in an eternal good that was being worked. Because at the cross, as Jesus bears the ultimate oppression and exploitation, as he has as he is stripped of all personal dignity and even physical covering, as he is laid bare before the masses to be mocked and ogled and even exploited for those Roman political causes or the Jewish religious purposes as he is bearing the hideous shame of the Jews and Romans alike, through this cosmic injustice, God's justice is actually being accomplished because in Jesus, he is punishing your sin and mine and the sins of a thousand generations before and the sins of a thousand generations that may come after us. And stunningly, we receive not condemnation for our sins when we come to the cross, but we actually receive the comfort of God's forgiveness for Christ's sake. We are forgiven all of our oppression, and evil, and wickedness, and sin, and Christ. Oh, what a beautiful Savior, toiling through the years of his life and ministry in agony, not motivated by envy, but as another New Testament scripture tells us, for the joy that was set before him, the joy that would come on the other side of the cross, the joy of seeing people from every tribe and family and tongue and nation delivered from their sins and free from the great wickedness, both oppressor and oppressed, both the one motivated by envy and the one who's exploited by the envy of another, bringing many sons and daughters into the kingdom, making them his joint heirs for the joy of rescuing and redeeming those whose lives were dominated and even defined by these specific sins Sins mentioned in Ecclesiastes 3 and 4, Jesus endured the cross. Oh, what wisdom and what power reside in this king and his cross. Indeed, something better than Solomon is here. Do you know him? I mean, do you know him intimately, personally? You see, if we go back and ask these three questions, which flow out of the, this portion we've just looked at, the only way to say yes, I'm prepared for the coming judgment, is if you know Jesus personally, intimately, savingly. The only way you can say yeah, I'm truly content, is if you're in right relationship with this same King. Say I know him as my Savior, I know him as my Creator. Trusting him as my shepherd. The only way you can answer that third question, are you really connected in community, is if you are first united to Jesus, this, this spiritual, mystical, real, vital union with Jesus that results in a community of faith. That's what makes this local church and so many others so beautiful, imperfect as we are. All of us, at least the professing, those who truly profess and know what I'm talking about, all of us are united to Jesus, which in turn unites all of us together. That's the kind of community that God created you for. So whether you, like the Jews, deem yourself to be a really religious, really moral person, or like the Greeks that Paul spoke of here in chapter one, who would say, yeah, religion's not my thing, but I, yeah, I'm after the wisdom and knowledge and understanding of the world. You need Jesus. Just plain and simple. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Have you heard the divine call this morning? God, the Spirit, has spoken very clearly to some of you, I'm confident. He's called you to turn away from your sin and to turn in faith to Jesus. For some of you, that this may be the very first moment you've heard that call. Oh, dear friend, answer it from your heart. Say, God, here I am. I don't know what all this means, but I'm sure that I need to stop being king of my life. And I'm sure that I need to turn my back on some really wicked things, and I'm turning to you in faith. Just speak that out from your heart to him. There are others of you who, you actually began that journey of faith many years ago, but you've stepped off this path of faith and obedience. And you've taken some control back. And this morning, God used his word to bring a conviction that your motives are askew and maybe it's envy itself. You're working hard and toiling not because you've found contentment in Jesus, but you want your neighbor's stuff and you actually want more than what your neighbor has. Maybe that's the particular thing that God is saying, turn away from it, turn back to me. There might be others who would say, you know, I've experienced some really difficult things and I've been determined to take vengeance into my own hands or to, or to set this world straight. And it's not actually a, a humble act of faith. It's actually an effort to regain control of your life. It, in one sense, you're just trying to be king over the hurt. And the king who went to the cross invites you to come to him this morning and release that hurt into his perfect, powerful, loving hands. Will you do that? Whatever your need is, friend, whatever call God is issuing in your soul right now, listen to it, believe it, and respond in faith. Now, for some of you, it may mean that we need to have a follow-up conversation, and we can do that after the service this morning. Or you may say, I'm going to need more than you know, 15 or 20 minutes. Then great, let's find a time that we can meet this week. We can fit it into your lunch break. We can find a time when you are free to think and talk and share and open the word together. It's such a joy for us as a church family to have conversations like those. And we want to extend that to you. So it's not just me, although I'm happy to do that personally. Know that I'm not the only one around here. And it's not even just our, our, our pastor-elder team. But let's talk after the service and figure out where you are, how we can serve you and help you and bless you. And please, give us the privilege. Father, as we hear your voice, as we respond in faith, seal to our hearts your good and gracious work. Don't let us go our own way. Don't let us return to the wisdom of our own hearts or the wisdom of this world, but we pray that you would secure us to the king of all wisdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.